Hello world. Ah, looks like another beautiful day in paradise. Mm, mm, mm. I cannot believe it took me so long to get away from everything. Get my own little beachfront bungalow on a remote tropical island. The sun is shining and the water is clear. As far as the eye can see, as far as the ear can hear, no sign of the cage man. Whoop! Promised myself I'd never say his name again, but who am I can? It's more likely to snow over here than it is for me to have to watch another film from the latter half of Nicolas Cage's filmography. Ah, uh, no more bad bads for me. Here on out, the only cage fact I'm interested in is how many lobsters my cage caught <laughs> in the river there. Ooh, love lobster for dinner. Mm, well, time to go pick my morning mango. So this is what you traded it all in for, huh, Derek? What? Who's there? Has it really been that long? You don't even recognize the voice of your own... Co-host? David? It can't be. Oh, it's me, old buddy. And I hate to interrupt your idyllic life here, Derek. But there's... There's been a development. Listen. If this has anything to do with... The cage man. I can't be involved, okay? I left that all behind... For a simpler life. Derek, I... I wish I could let you just live out your life here. This looks lovely. Palm trees are swaying. The waves are rolling in calm. It is. It but is. Derek, I, I hate to tell you this. The cage man has been busy. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's busy. He's always busy, man. But it can't be that bad. Derek, I need you to... I think you should have a seat. Okay. What, what did he make? Five, six movies while we were on hiatus? All right, calm down, Derek. I mean, what, a, do a do dozen? Derek, he made 18 movies. My God. <laughs> Derek, you know we're the only ones uniquely qualified to decipher whether or not what the cage is doing in the latter half of his filmography is actually a worthwhile performance or a craven cash grab. We are the only ones who can wade through the cynical and ironic takes and uplift his best work. God damn it, you're right. You're absolutely right. I've been neglecting my duties. I mean, it's been nice here, but it's not the job that I want, Dave. But I'm the only one who can do it. Yeah. It's also, you're the only one who will do it is sort of, I mean, we're both kind of the only ones who will do it, but so we kind of just are stuck. It's, it's a taxation. It. It's a taxation. Yeah. It's our, yeah, it's our duty. You're right. It's our duty. Um, but what do you say, partner? You ready for season two? Let's, why don't. Why don't we go and pick my last mango together? That sounds like a great cinema snack to eat. While we watch 
our next Cage movie. We're back, baby. <laughs> we're back, and we're I, uncaged. I missed everybody and everything, and I can't wait to get into the Cage Man's filmography again. Derek, I, I worry that this is the happiest we'll hear you for the rest of the season. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> I The idea of the show is much better than participating with the show itself. But therein lies my role so that you, good listener, don't have to experience the mediocrity, the wasted potential, and the surprising glimmers of hope within this deep dive into the ocean of Kal-El Sr., Mr. Nicholas Cage. Beautifully said. It, Derek, hold on a second. What is, what is that over there? Is that a Netflix sleeve? Wait a second. Is this is this a John Travolta film? Listen. Another actor whose heyday has passed and is now doing straight to VOD schlock? Maybe I have developed a sort of uh, ritual or you get stuck in your ways, man. And and this guy, people don't see him the way right. that he we, deserves we, to we be can't, seen. We can't get into this. <laughs> we got to focus on the cage, man. All right, let's. Uh, I got. I chartered us a plane back to the mainland, Derek. Let's head out. Welcome to Contemporary Cage, an expert and informed look at the latter half of actor Nicholas Cage's filmography. My name is David Tress, and I'm here as I always will be until the end of time. Derek Smith, how you oh, doing, Derek? Always and forever. I feel uh, like I have energy now, but sh- will soon be zapped. Uh, you look fantastic. You are tanner than yep. I've ever seen you. You've mm-hmm. got a beautiful long head of hair. Yep. I lost uh, most of the color, so it, it's pretty much uh, silver, silver white. You look gorgeous. Thanks. I I was That's actually I was past. Uh, it was between me and one other guy for Geralt of Rivia, um, and I just missed it for the new Netflix special. Oh, my God. Beaten out by Henry Cavill. Uh, Don't say his name. I don't want to give him any more publicity than he's already got for my leading role. We'll uh, let you put um, those uh, monster slaying skills uh, to the test here when you slay uh, these monster blockbusters. I don't know. Good (laughs) segue. Lost in that segue. Um, but yeah, welcome everybody to season two of Contemporary mm. Cage. It's back by popular it's request. Back. Not everyone was demanding. Yeah, not uh, popular request. Popular demand. Yes, an essential uh, task and service that we are providing. Um, we we took some time off, but you know who didn't take some time off? He the never cage does. Man. He never, never does. does. You think the guy would uh, let his foot up off the gas pedal for a second? But, you know, uh, you know he, he he's a he's a workaholic. He's a classic workaholic. He's a workaholic, and that brings us to our first game. We're oh, gonna play, uh, we're gonna play a game very very similar to Cage Facts, but a slight alteration to it. The man has been busy, as we just uh, established, and he uh, continues to have a number of films in production. He's released an, quite a number of films. And today I'm going to uh, tell you about three movies, Derek. And one of them's fake. 
One of them say <laughs> I'm going to There's no way anybody <laughs> could ever win this game. Um uh, and also I was even even able to do a sub genre within the films that he's releasing. I was like, "Oh, uh a few of these <laughs> sound very similar. He he does a lot in the re- revenge genre, you know, okay. a a daughter or a wife will be stolen. That's a very, very uh, common, that's his wheelhouse for sure. But I noticed a new trend for some of his uh, upcoming movies, uh, sort of animal, <laughs> animal-related <laughs> action films, sort of survival films. You know, both of those are Liam Neeson territory as well, with the wolf that's one true. and Taken and all that. So he's, you know. Very similar uh, points in their career. Nicholas Cage and Liam Neeson. Yeah, actually, um, a lot of parallels between those two men. One of them's more reserved, and the other mm-hmm. one is Liam Neeson. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, are you ready for your movies, Derek? Absolutely. Okay, we're going to start out with Primal. Okay. A big game hunter for zoos has booked passage on a Greek shipping freighter with a fresh haul of exotic and deadly animals from the Amazon, including a rare white jaguar, along with a political assassin being extradited to the U.S. in secret. Two days into the journey, the assassin escapes and releases the captive animals, throwing the ship into chaos. This is a big game hunter for a zoo? (laughs) That (laughs) is what it says. What? A a job that uh, certainly exists. (laughs) I think it's illegal, especially with any organization that cares after animals. Absolutely. An uh, AZA-affiliated zoo would not allow this, I can assure you. Um, (laughs) Okay, moving into our next one. We'll give you some time to reflect on each of these once we get through them all. Uh, Next up, we have Cold Cock. (laughs) Terrence John is one of seven scientists stationed at the world's most remote Arctic research station. Scheduled scheduled to return home in just one week, the team discovers something that possesses a prehistoric threat to their survival. A species of feathered Arctic dinosaurs that manage to survive the Ice Age and thrive in the isolated cold. Terrence must use every tool available to him to save his team from extinction. Okay. Dave. We have one last film. <laughs> Pig. Tig. <laughs> <laughs> A truffle hunter who oh. lives alone in the Oregonian wilderness oh. must return to his past in Portland in search of his pol- beloved foraging pig after she is kidnapped. A truffle hunter would most definitely be from Portland. Yes. <laughs> Very accurate. So those are our three movies. Okay, I think I know. Okay, yes, we have, uh, and just to recap, Primal, uh, Cold Cock, and Pig. Okay. So I can't believe Primal didn't have a, a Noah's Ark uh like a kind of play on words in Ooh, there. Very good. There might be some religious undertones to that one for sure. He's been known to uh, dabble in religious undertones. Um, so 
I can't believe two of these exist. Uh, these are like <laughs> recent stuff, right? None of these are out yet. These are all in production. <laughs> oh my! Damn <laughs> it! There goes my soon. whole thing. I thought for sure the Arctic one would not be it because if somebody spent enough budget to create uh, big prehistoric dinosaurs and Nick Cage, there would have been some. I would have seen something about that. Mm. Uh, and it's got cock in the title. Um, I I think the first one, Primal, because when I got confused about the big game hunter part, you said that's what it says, which makes me feel a little bit less like you made it up. Also, you're not that stupid because you work <laughs> at a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> That is a fair metagaming. Uh, <laughs> so it's either Icecock with John Trenton or John. <laughs> two first names. Uh, okay, so I'm going to do what I do a lot on this show and say, I say the second one is fake, but I hope that I'm wrong. Okay. So I win either way. Derek? Yeah. Starting this season two oh. uh, cage fact record off good, you are correct, my good friend. 100% one for one. Coldcock <laughs> is, uh, is my own invention. Coldcock has you written all over it, Dave. <laughs> I, I, I have started outlining it. I will be writing it and pitching it to Nick. Sounds like something he could do. Yeah, I'd watch that. Yeah, it sounds fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, that does mean we have uh, pig and primal to be very very excited. We'll look forward to those two. Ooh, pig! Yeah, from Portland. Uh, hmm. I know a big game hunter for zoos. For zoos, he for goes zoos. and illegally poaches beautiful large animals. Yeah, maybe they meant like he he captures them to like he's a sensitive guy who saves the animals or something. I'm sure that's what it must be because I know that there is you know um people who work to like a lot of zoos a lot of their uh, animals come from the illegal pet trade and they have to be rescued by some sorts of law enforcement so maybe he's sort of uh working in that uh area but in like a private sector capacity maybe he's taking down poachers and then their animals who can't survive in the wild who knows who fucking knows it, well big game hunting uh, definition is the hunting of large game for uh <laughs> trophy or sport so <laughs> It's not. <laughs> yeah, it sounds insane. <laughs> it sounds like something that, like, would have been made in the '90s when, like, people were less aware. Yeah, there's of a, that. Uh, the suspension of disbelief is just like so high. As long as it yeah. means let's just get to the fun boat full of animals and an right. assassin, and Nick Cage has to like fight them all. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, survive them while hunting an assassin. It sounds like that's the most dangerous game. Yes. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited for that. Um, uh, but yeah, that does it. Derek, you got it. You nailed it. Um, good. And now mm -hmm. we get to move into... Um, did we have a segment name for just the meat of our show? The reviews of the movies? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think it was just like, let's talk just, about the yeah, movie. Yeah, we're here now. Let's talk about the movie. Uh, and the movie is Mandy. Um, 
the 2017? Very recently. looking this up. It was one uh, of the reasons we kind of, one of the first tugs at our heartstrings to bring the yes. show back is when this, when this came out. 2018. Uh, the film is uh, written by, film is written by uh, Panos Kostam, Kos, uh, Kosmatos. He's the director and as well. Aaron Stewart on, and yes, Panos is uh, is the director as well. Stars Nicolas Cage, Andrea Riceborough, and Linus Roach. Uh, and then just a brief description: the enchanted lives of a couple in a secluded forest are brutally shattered shattered by a nightmarish hippie cult and their demon biker henchmen, propelling a man into a spiraling, surreal rampage of vengeance. Um, and then just a second ago, we were talking about how uh, that revenge genre is is a real wheelhouse for Nick. I feel like this movie does so much to um, subvert your expectations of the traditional revenge genre. There, there's so many things ab- about this that uh, are, it, it's very much the genre that this, spa- this film is still working in, but uh, does a lot to maybe like... Uh, sidestep some of the more regressive uh tendencies in those movies regressive like tropes in those movies um you know and we we can get into that if you have uh, a different opinion derek's given me a little well i don't i don't even it's okay so it's definitely a movie you can just start talking about um and a big part of that is uh um panos is definitely uh, somebody with a story to tell, uh, unlike yeah. a lot of the Cage movies we've seen. Um, mm-hmm. Very deliberate. And, uh, you know, because he has, like, very great spines for his characters and his representations and the things he wants to uh, explain, and, and it doesn't necessarily make it a good movie. But to, to, to get back to the point of the genre thing, I barely consider it a genre... A revenge genre um yeah i think the revenge is just kind of a structure of the story to move forward in the last half of the movie right and it's and that's it, yeah yeah like when, when i heard the synopsis it almost set me up like you said um expectations were a lot different maybe it's just because like when i was young like watching kill bill really set up my expectations for a good revenge story where it kind of jumps immediately into the reason why revenge is happening and it's just propelled by that determination whereas this movie definitely i think is strongest and has a lot going on in everything leading up to the revenge story that ultimately unfolds and the genre is much more its own thing which is an amazing kind of sentiment to say about any movie uh Basically, I would consider the genre much more about the fantasy metal, if that's even a thing. Oh, totally. Yeah, this movie is hugely influenced by, uh, like, really, like, dark fantasy and D&D and metal and, uh, it, it, like, in, like, psychedelic metal, like, psychedelic fantasy, um, 
but it, I, I totally agree with you that one of the things that I, I sort of meant by it, like subverting uh, like a typical revenge genre is that it could be categorized into it's, it's a very hard film to categorize mm -hmm. because um, for, for those of you who haven't seen it, it it spends so much time investing you into the relationship. It, it's a movie as much about loss as it is, and love as it is about uh, revenge, um, even though that becomes a part of it. The thing that I love most about this movie is like what it has to say about love and then the depictions of love in the movie. So we have, um, uh, we have Nicolas Cage, uh, who plays Red Miller, and then uh, his partner, uh, played by Andrea Riceboro, named Mandy Bloom, uh, the titular Mandy. Mm -hmm. And they live in, I think, the uh, it's this, like, fantastic version of, like, some secluded, isolated Washington mountains, I believe. Yeah, Washington State, kind of. Yeah, Washington State mount mountains. And uh, he, Nicholas's Cage, Red Miller... Um, Nicholas's cage. <laughs> Nicholas's cage, in a Nicholas's way. Nicholas's cage. Uh, Nicholas Cage's character, Red Miller, uh, plays a lumberjack, and um, and Mandy is a artist. She's like a fantasy artist. Uh, I think that, like in my mind, she's doing uh, like freelance work for like Magic: The Gathering stuff, and or like or doing like old, um, you know, like fantasy novels or something like that, or doing art and D and D books. That's kind of her wheelhouse it seems like definitely um, uh the imagery of um because she does wear a lot of like heavy metal t-shirts yeah and a lot of the imagery are is very very similar to like late 70s early 80s heavy metal uh album covers mm -hmm. absolutely um so yeah they live in this like very very secluded uh house in this in this forest uh, and you get the sense that these people probably had hard lives that have led them to be isolated, but you can tell that they're, like, very much just, like, the perfect match for one another. There's, like, very, very sweet characterization in between them. They have, like, two conversations that I, I think kind of frame their uh, relationship in a really, really nice way, and both of them revolve around learning new things about each other. One of them is a conversation about, like, what their favorite planet is and they both give like very very thoughtful uh answers and like nick gives like a very thoughtful answer at first and then gives kind of a, a a jokey answer and you can just see how they're playing off one another but i but i really like that as a depiction of love as as like constantly being truly invested and interested and curious about your partner i think that's like a really and it's depicted in a really beautiful way and then the other one is a uh uh, Mandy is describing this uh, traumatic experience where, like, a neighbor brought over a pillowcase full of starlings, of baby starlings, and tells, um, like, this group of neighborhood kids that they have to kill them all. And she's just, like, uh, she's just sort of reliving this traumatic experience, going in depth about, like, her emotional state throughout it. And you can just tell from uh, Red's reaction and, like, attentiveness to the story. There's just like a real sweetness and like uh, th taking the time to have those moments uh, up front in the beginning of the story, like two of my favorite moments in, in the movie, but just to establish how perfect they are to, to one another, kind of why they are secluded, why they rely on each other so much, why they work so well together. And then uh, 
like an accurate description of real or an accurate an accurate uh, display of real love, I think is like so so important for like the cultists that we l later meet that talk a lot about love, but it's very much a a faux love. It's like not real. Um, but yeah, there's just so much that happens in the setup in the early half of the movie. So the the scenes you're talking about. Um, one of the things uh, about them establishing their relationship and stuff, I, I, I think of it a little bit less as as them establishing their relationship and more about the peaceful nature of both of the characters, which is mm -hmm. uh, obviously super contrasting to what the movie becomes, um, and I think also. Uh, a lot of people talk about how the the main villain, the cultist that you referred to, is kind of a representation of masculinity um, brought to extremes. Um, but I see like Nick Cage's character, especially in the beginning, as also a reputation of masculinity and its strengths within a, a peaceful and supportive, loving relationship. Um, because I feel like Panos. Uh, uh, what did I? Castamos. Oh. Castamos, yeah. He, um, I definitely respect him in this movie for writing what he knows and his experience and his like looking inward, so that it's a lot of honesty. Um, but because of that, uh, like the whole movie, I love that it's called Mandy because it really is about Mandy more than anything mm -hmm. and she quite literally colors the world around her um so the first time you get introduced to the use of color uh is in those sweet moments with Nick Cage and her yeah. and uh it's people's feelings about Mandy are so overwhelming and the filmmaker does a really great job of scenes having more feeling than story. Yeah, um, totally. And the color is a big part of that. It, it, the color is, uh, obviously it's beautiful and otherworldly, mm -hmm. but as just kind of a representation of the, uh, the feelings a characterized masculinity can have to a peaceful, beautiful intelligent and like um just uh almost kind of otherworldly woman yeah. um but i i uh i i didn't really think of it as different forms of love but i think we're kind of hitting on, on similar points no totally uh and i love your description of like how the the visuals and the coloration of the film is used as um uh, like one of the like key ways of communicating emotion and like uh, the different types of like energy that characters are putting into the world. Um, because the visuals in this movie, I think are just, I think it's stunning. It, they like, there's so many moments where it looks kind of like, uh, you know, uh, who is it? Frank Frazetta. Do you know that guy? He's like, uh, this like this from the eighties, a fantasy. Artist oh yeah. Yeah. Eighties and seventies uh, is when he was really active. But there's, um, yeah, just the way that, like, 
you know, there, there's uh, a dream sequence where it's Mandy, like, moving through the forest at one point, and just, like, her physicality, the lighting, uh, just everything about the way, the, the visuals um, of these scenes with her in it are these, like, really, uh, uh, like, sort of dreamlike, atmospheric, they're, they're, it's just gorgeous, it, like, looks so, so good, um, but, I, but I love the read outside of it just, like, being this really, really... Uh, beautiful thing to look at it's also like doing a lot of the um heavy lifting and communicating uh tone and emotion in the scenes and then uh, also like adding to characterization um so i could i could really talk about and get into the first half of this movie a lot however uh the things that nick cage specifically brings to the movie Mm -hmm. has a lot more to do with the uh I guess, for lack of a better word, like genre stuff and mm-hmm. campiness. Uh, like, I kind of, I kind of settled on this. It, a lot of the movies we've watched and talked about are not for anybody, but this movie isn't for everybody. For sure. And <laughs> the distinction is that I can't, you know. I don't want to say if it's good or bad or if it's fun or not or if it you know in terms of the second half of the movie where the revenge stuff starts but it wasn't for me like I uh have been metalhead adjacent a lot of my life as a musician and working with musicians and this movie is a testament to the fact that metalheads are uh deeply wanting to be peaceful and uh, are very emotional and sensitive, uh, beautiful, artistic, creative beings. Uh, but I, uh, the representations of Nick's anguish as he uh, fights these super mutant biker fantasy demons definitely lost me in the latter half of the film. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, it, it, I mean, and then just to, I, I think that, I, I when I was watching it, I rewatched it today, and I very much was like, "These are like two different movies." It's truly, yeah, absolutely. You, you get a title card, I think, at one hour and ten minutes into it that says mm-hmm. Mandy. That's yeah. like when the title card drops. Um, and there is the. It's like the first half of this movie is, uh, or maybe the first third of it is like quiet and contemplative and just really pretty and and there's sadness to it and but like also beauty and um and then you are introduced to these cultists uh and uh that's that's sort of when the movie like starts to um to move into the the direction of like something that is a little more campy um, i i will but- say the 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 venn diagram where there's the beginning of the movie and the um the nick cage of it all mm-hmm. there's this sliver in the middle of the drug uh scene where mandy meets the cultist yes. and the actual inciting event of uh them putting i don't know how much we want to spoil but uh yeah, I, I mean i i think we want to be like free in our discussion of this so yeah like the, uh, up until this point i think we've been somewhat spoiler light but we're gonna just like talk about the film so yeah. if you're really interested in seeing this for yourself without hearing anything about it you could maybe jump out now and then jump back in once you've yeah. watched it and you're totally uh it's your prerogative to do that and you'd be right to do that i will say though like what happens in the movie is definitely not even nearly as important of 
uh, how it's conveyed or, or mm-hmm. the feelings that, that you kind of get like stretched 100%. over, you know? Um, yes. But obviously uh, the revenge happens because of Mandy's death and uh, the scenes leading up to her death and her death are the strongest scenes in the movie. And yeah. um, if you do I notice... Before we talk about that specific scene, because that's maybe my favorite scene in the movie too, yeah, uh, yeah. where she has her moment, we should maybe introduce uh, the, the cultists. So there's like this group of uh, sort of like hippie um, people that spot Mandy. Like co- they're coming into town. They're passing through Washington. There's this guy named uh, Jeremiah who is the cult leader. Um, and one of the first, the first moment where we get to like learn anything about his character, he's lying in a hotel room. Um, one of his older cult members is like, uh, is talking to him and he is just impulsive and mean and, and also like is depicted kind of weak. He's like lying on his side and, and sort of seems like almost ill in some ways, but is, is obviously just has this massive ego. and I think that there's really there's some really interesting characterization that happens into the specifics of their cruelty and it the way that it shows um, the sort of uh, hierarchy within this cult, like just really like subtly and kind of quickly, they they establish uh, what the hierarchy in the cult, how there's uh, this older woman who's who's maybe been around him the longest, but is kind of being cast aside now. There's a uh, uh, an older man who's like his right hand man. They they joke and mock a couple of the other cultists, and then there's this younger woman who uh, is very very clearly just like is being like abused like sexually and and like emotionally and 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 uh, and they don't really like she doesn't really have um, a much of a, a character at all, but is I think like important to clarify the older woman and that younger woman in the cult are are like important clarifying elements to just this man's way that he views women and then also his obsession with mandy he sees her driving into town um but they basically make the decision where they're like i I need this woman he asks uh, his right hand man to go and get her for him again the movie is like all about the cosmic power of this woman mandy and Mm -hmm. there's actually not really any women characters in the movie if i can be so bold like they are defined by the actions and attitudes and perspectives of the male characters so mandy is truly defined by like nick's love and passion for her as well as the cultists obsession and then uh the other two only the only other women in the movie are the the ones that are literally just basically a before and after of the same person someone who is yeah. introduced to the cult and completely silenced and and one that has been within its uh ranks for for a very long time and it's it's definitely uh like i said i feel like panos is is diving into his own male psyche and ego and the the heights and and depths of it and in that way you can't fault him for representing and writing and exploring what he knows uh uh in terms of his characters you know Mm -hmm. um but yeah now getting into i think 
the, the moment where in which Mandy has the most agency and you get to know the most about her character is uh, th- this moment after. I mean, they, they there's there's these like hell demon bikers. This is like one of the first like big fantastic elements in the movie. Um, but the cultists have some sort of a connection where they uh, exchange like a jar of goo and uh, yeah. can ask for something in return. I know um, we've been we've been kind of heady and very like oh film, but yeah. this movie is definitely one to like. Like we said, it's almost like two movies. There's a lot of popcorn munch and ridiculousness. Like, yes, it's a goo. It's a jar of. It's literally mega LSD. Yeah, exactly. Is what it is, which gives these SNM metalheads superpowers. Yep. Uh, and, and I will say, just like everything about how they're introduced, the like state of like fear and unease the cultists who are calling upon them have when they're like rolling up uh the way that they're shot they're just look they're scary ass dudes yeah they're all like very very much like in gimp suits with like rods in their head and just like each i think there's three of them they're all like pretty distinct um builds and frames there's like a really big bulky one but just the way that like the light hits them they all look like wet with something <laughs> they're just like well, despicable that's where nightmarish guys that's where like i appreciate that the movie can create a fantasy world and fantasy creatures without actually creating fantasy creatures it's people totally. uh which is very cool although i just kind of wish it w- it leaned a little bit more to realism in in but i mean that's that's not the mo of this freaking guy like this no he's he's think- going for it yeah um yeah i think that there's a a lot about uh the the imagery in this movie that like even though there are elements of it that feel like very grounded um and it takes place in some version of our reality uh it, it becomes clear that it's like okay we're there's like tons of fantasy elements like bleeding into this world and like even the way that uh one of the first like title cards that you see uh, is is for I think it's called the Shadow Mountains and there's this like really mm-hmm. the way that everything is described it's like oh this is like if I was watching a fantasy movie um, uh, or if you were out in the mountains doing LSD <laughs> right yes um, but so yeah the, these these bikers go and uh, the cultists and the bikers together uh, go capture. Nick, they go to Mandy and uh, Red's home and uh, abduct abduct them both. Um, and then that's when we have the moment where Jeremiah, like, is essentially trying to court Mandy. You know, uh, he... Induct her into the cult. And... Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, But she is, like, dosed with LSD before she is introduced to him. He's talking about the Carpenters, I think, is the music that he... He yeah well he was in a band right and they sounded like the Carpenters and, and yes he, and it, I'm sure it was some sort of comparison about how I'm better than the Carpenters or some petty bullshit right. like that yeah just this he's just this massive egotist he he has this ridiculous robe on with these big like sh- uh like shoulder pads on it and he is just so obviously. Uh, working under the assumption that he will be able to win Mandy over and indo- indoctrinate her into his cult. But you um, do get a little bit of the sense of him being uh, something that's interesting or worthwhile because of how intense 
the drug sequence is yes. because it, it it is um some of the coolest special effects uh with the coloring in to to kind of convey a drug trip without uh being derivative or kind of uh clearly a drug trip on film it's it's fun there's not like it's something i lens like whoa like we got a lot of that in uh uh bad lieutenant yeah um but yeah, it's a it's a very very unique and original way to convey. It's a fun trip. sequence. It's like my favorite scene. That scene and it's like one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Yeah, and it results. Uh, that scene sort of climaxes with him putting on his music. Mandy sort of just being in a drugged out stupor. He takes off his robe and he's just nude in front of her, uh, and he has just been talking this entire time, monologuing at Mandy about. Um, you know, he's been, he spoke to God and God told him that he is deserving of everything within the world again, sort of getting into these like problems with masculinity and maybe like white masculinity in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, yeah, so he he's monologuing and then she just at a certain point, like, uh, it's almost like she like clicks into the absurdity of what's happening. There's this nude older man playing her her record in front of her with the expectation that she's going to be taken by any of this and it's this it's this cool moment because you know we've we've learned who she is as a person we learned the type of partner that she's going to respond to we know the type of art that she's into and everything about this guy is counter to that Mm -hmm. and she just starts like cackling at him just like this humiliation of, of like uh, of laughing and it just like progresses and builds until she's like screaming laughing tied in a chair at him and like it's this reversal of power in the scene where she like suddenly holds the power and he starts yelling at his cultist to like look away and he's just so obviously humiliated by it it's like a kind of a nice moment for the audience too because uh you know especially with the way we've been talking about it and and the pace of the movie it's definitely people would call it art house you know um kind of like doing things at a pace that isn't necessarily normal for like a theater release and some people can kind of just by the way of it not uh fitting in certain like expectations can kind of turn you off to a movie but I have always felt that there's this like connection between like high art or somebody taking something very seriously and also laughing at how stupid it all is. And totally. Mandy definitely gets to like uh, subvert your expectations again in the scene and kind of ride that kind of vibe that you might have watching a movie like this. Yeah, it's it's like this like almost cathartic moment that like oh thank god someone is not taking this serious because it's not serious it's like worth ridicule and it's worth mocking yeah um and it's this like really empowering scene then his response again this gets into the dynamics of you know men being rejected by women he he ends up they end up killing mandy they they mm-hmm. take her outside in a bag and then light her on fire in front of uh, right in Red. front of the cage man which this right is what i was worried about with this movie is like the, the director and the characters 
are really the stars of the show here. And, uh, you know, this is contemporary cage, Dave. This is contemporary cage. So let's get into it. Cause I think I, I think we're going to have different takes on this. Okay. Do I, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> well, my take is that I think that the specifics of how cage, uh, like the, his tendencies as an actor are frequently, uh, misused or misappropriated so that they stand out as something that is foreign and like unbelievable and, uh, just exaggerated hyperbolic to the situation that they're being uh, used in here. I feel like, so there's the scene of him reacting. He's, he's like bound, uh, you know, his hands are bound to a pole. I think he's on his knees. He um, has like a cord in his mouth to prevent him from speaking. And he's just like sobbing, you know, sort of roaring just in complete, you know, disbelief, uh, just in, in an immense amount of sadness, as you would be, I think, if the only person that you cared about in your life was taken from you well, and, and being taken burned alive brutal, in front of you. Yeah, taken in yeah, such that'll a brutal get you way. There. Um, and you know, he goes from that. They leave. He's able to free himself. Uh, there's this really like sober moment for a while in the movie where he goes over to her remains, and there's just like nothing left outside of ash, really uh and uh he like goes and is just like struggling to make some sort of connection just you know completely at a loss as to what do you do after an experience like this Mm -hmm. and uh this is like a quick tangent but it's just the next thing that happens in the movie he goes inside and there's a uh, commercial on the tv for (laughs) cheddar goblin cheddar goblin uh mac and cheese and it's just this absurd practical effects like goblin mascot that's like vomiting mac and cheese on these kids' heads and into their bowl. And it's, it's like the, uh, about it's the cheesiest mac and cheese. It's the guys who did too many cooks did that. Yes, sequence. that's right. Yeah, yeah, the puppeteers who did that. Yeah. Um, but I and he's just looking at it like, what the fuck is going? But yeah. I, I I love that moment because I think it's such a good depiction of after you experience like a uh, tragedy in your life mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. have moments where you are like trying to consume media just because it so naturally is like a form of escapism yeah and you're just like what the, who the fuck made this how did anyone think this is okay yeah and it's just this really absurd representation and it's just like it feels the emotional state being conveyed and uh communicated in that ad is so so far away from where he's at personally that it's just like yeah it's just like this is insane. Like what someone, like an adult who has nothing to live for, who probably doesn't want to eat for the next three days, is just watching this highly saturated cartoon <laughs> goblin vomit mac and cheese all over children who are screaming yeah. with delight. Yeah. So after that, he walks over and has uh, this like he has like a full blown Nick Cageiest moment. Yeah, that's that this is have. the Nick Cage scene. This is like okay, this is here he goes. You know, it's, here. It's one continuous take of the entire grieving process leading up to him swearing revenge with a bottle of vodka in his hand the whole time. Yeah, so he is in his tidy whities like, caked in blood. He has a, uh, like, baseball (laughs) t-shirt with a tiger on it. And he's just standing, and, and, like, I love the set design. The bathroom is so, like... How would you even describe it's, it? Loud? It's like, yeah, it's like an incredibly loud 80s bathroom with just uh, <laughs> sort of like uh, yellow and orange patterned um, 
wallpaper and like bamboo uh, towel racks. (laughs) And it's just the most ridiculous uh, thing ever. And he's just, like Derek said, just has like a gigantic handle of vodka and he's pouring it into his wounds. He's chugging it. He's he's screaming. But the thing that like works so well for me in that moment is I'm like, this is what this is the sort of um, you could clip that out and put it in any uh, Nick Cage compilation. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, this fits in perfectly. But within the context of the film, I think it's like so earned and so deserved. And I feel like they're using him as, you know, one of the tools in the director's toolbox so Mm -hmm. effectively for what he does so well. And I I think it's kind of a nice moment and kind of like, is the exact reason that I wanted to do this show in the first place is because I think that uh, the uh, interpretation and the uh, idea and the sort of like the memed version of what Nicolas Cage is and who he is as an actor and a performer, uh, I think still is like, I think he is just such a valuable actor still. And I think he can put out such great performances. I just think that uh, what he is specifically so good at which is uh, you know in this scene is is uh um is communicating a sort of manic grief just like unspeakable grief like uh i I think he's just so effective at it and i i think it's just like it's so nice to see that extreme this like version of him that he's kind of like mocked for uh be like okay this is perfect this is the reaction that you would see out of a guy who just experienced all the things that this guy saw it's so hard to watch that sequence and not be influenced or colored by the context of nicholas's cage body of work you know because he can bring that kind of manic energy to any role and it doesn't really even matter what the role is. Like he shows up to work and he'll do it. Um, but like you said, this is an earned moment. This is where someone who can access that is appropriate. But I do think for me, what is missing in terms of his performances in terms of his manic freak out stuff is just the fact that I think Nick Cage's brand of manic breakdown is partly about grief, but mostly about self-loathing, self-hatred, and self-destruction. And that element doesn't really exist in this. He's just broken, you know? And, like, when the stage is set for a long take of Nick Cage doing his thing... I'm probably bringing to it stuff that doesn't even exist and it's hurting the performance for me, which is that kind of sucks. And maybe if he didn't take every fucking job (laughs) and freak out on front of the camera for any reason, this performance might've resonated more with me, but you know, regardless of how I interpret it, the performance still is what it is. And I'm, I'm glad that I, I know a lot of people really like that sequence and, and feel that yeah. he really brought a lot to it. Um, yeah. And then al- almost, um, 
you know, I, I feel like we're going beat by beat, but the movie is just like so meaty. There's just like so much to talk about in like every single scene. But uh, almost immediately after that, he goes, he falls asleep, passes out, wakes up in the morning um, and goes out to a friend of his that was like keeping a weapon, like a crossbow that he had. And that is the moment I, I, I feel like it's almost more of an effective it's once he's sort of made up his mind about what he's doing, uh, he, how he's going to process this grief. He's going to go and exact revenge on, you know, these motherfuckers that did this unspeakable act to because uh, he was wife. he was definitely afraid of them and still oh, yeah. is when he's doing the crossbow. But then, yeah, once he gets armed yes. and creates a. <laughs> Once he has, you ever seen those YouTube videos where it's like they the blacksmith guys who create stuff from video games? Yes. He basically does that. He, they give him a pair of World of Warcraft like engineer goggles, uh-huh. and he creates. It's literally a letter in a metal band's name. Yes, a hundred percent. That's such a good description <laughs> of what this axe looks like. Yeah, and he just gets it's just this like chrome twisting, entirely metallic uh acts that he creates he forges himself um it's almost it kind of took me out because it's so what the rest of the movie is because like that exists completely normally in a movie where nick cage has a chainsaw melee fight Mm -hmm. later with doesn't like doesn't he bring out a chainsaw and then the other guy brings out one and then it like it's revealed to be like two full-grown men's length tall yeah another i mean i'm sure there's like a read that i don't want to sign off on of like the types of masculinity and warring types of masculinity and some sort of like phallic implication uh in that chainsaw fight oh Um, yeah but uh yeah i i think that I the movie that this becomes is is it's it's got more in common with like Evil Dead uh, yeah. or something. There it, it's like very very comical. There's uh you know and and I don't even think we need to like go as deeply into this stuff. Although there is totally like substantive conversations that we can have about all of this. But just for the sake of time, um, we can do talk in like slightly broader strokes about the latter half of this movie, um. But he, you know, is going and exacting his revenge. It's like all all of the action in it is like really well choreographed and shot and still looks great. The visuals in this are, are really great. He goes to the person, the acid supplier for these bikers and these cultists at, at one point, And it's in this like incredibly sterile um, like compound and there's a caged tiger, uh, like a Bengal tiger. In at that point him. of the movie, too. It's really hard to understand what's actually real because of how he takes mm, a little bit sure. of the mega LSD and sh- shit's just getting wild by that yes. point in the movie. Yeah, he, his face is entirely caked by blood. He cuts one of the biker's throats at one point and it's just he calls he's him, like holding him up. He calls him a vicious snowflake, I think. He does call him a vicious snowflake. And then snowflake. there is definitely two uh, batshit totally off his rocker looks that he gives in this movie once at the very end when he's mm-hmm. looking at mandy and his revenge is complete but once when shot. he's in <laughs> once he's in the the 
den of the like LSD biker dudes and he starts killing people and he I don't it's absolutely wild it like totally steals the whole scene he like uh puts his hands on the the chin and forehead of a of a of a biker and does the whole like push and pull break your neck and instantly kill you move but he kind of does a little half twist and like a conquistador has his hand up in the air and he looks right at the camera with this crazy wide-eyed stare and it lingers just a little too long and it is deeply disturbing yeah i think that yes i feel like there's another moment where he looks into camera but that moment is so good and there is like there's a like a a flamboyancy to the way that he like kills this guy Uh, he like disposes of that guy that's like really I don't know. I think it, that whole sequence, it, him in the biker house killing those guys, uh, is I think a lot of fun. There's, it's just so ridiculous and over the top. I think Evil Dead is like the the movie that I kept thinking about. Yeah. Just in the amount of blood and grime, and there's just like everything's dirty. Every surface in that house, it's just like this absolute slum is covered in like takeout food and just you, you know it's, uh, yeah. But um, I think that, what was I going to say? Oh, so an interesting thing that happens as he like starts to go and dispose of the different cultists, there's, um, there's like a thematic thing that I think is really interesting um, that is kind of uh, ties in with Mandy's reaction to Jeremiah, like selling himself as some sort of prophet. As, uh, mm-hmm. um, and it's the idea of like, not getting into a debate with people who have exposed themselves not to be serious thinkers or people mm. uh and it, it's it's something that is like Sounds very like, politically relevant yeah I and it kind of i've definitely met some people from new york city who kind of do them just kind of putting them on blast right now yeah it's, you know like um i totally get what you're saying yeah so uh, i think that there's but so it's like you know you have like uh recently there was that audio um i don't know when this episode's going to drop but recently I'll, I'll use this as an analog richard spencer who is like a, a white supremacist um and someone who is like affiliated with white supremacist groups had a clip of audio released that was his reaction to heather hare being killed in the charlottesville protests mm. uh heather hare was the um, was one of the protesters who was driven into by this guy who was a white supremacist. Um, and uh, Richard Spencer is like reacting using tons of racial slurs. And there were people that responded to that with like surprise. And there were also like tons of people because because there was this is this is a huge thing to get into. But it, there was this like rehab of the image of Richard Spencer that happened over the course of his time when he's been a media pres- presence. He's been invited on CNN. He's been uh, profiled, I think, in the New York Times as like the one of the dapper leaders of like the alt right. And it's this guy who had clear white supremacist affiliations. And to me, when I see a person like that, I'm like, this person has a body of work out there that you can engage with and dismiss you can you don't need to engage with them like personally you don't need to give them a platform you could read their stuff realize that it's um fueled by hate and have the debate before you ever like open yourself up to a conversation with him 
I think that there's something about both Mandy and Red's decision to not engage in conversation with either of these guys. So the second, um, uh, the, 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 like the second hand man in the cult, uh, there's a, there's a scene where Nick like pulls him out of a car, throws him up against a tree and he starts like trying to perform some sort of a power play. The second hand, uh, guy in the cult tries to perform this power play where he's, you know, telling Nick, he's like, Oh, you know, taunting him about burning mandy and nick just immediately as when he's talking when he's opening his mouth puts like the hilt (laughs) of the axe and just stuffs it through his throat and just silences him because he knows he's like i've seen what you've done i know your ideas i know your values in this world and you have nothing of value to say to me i think that there's value about not because because and and this is like very much like getting into my own uh like personal beliefs but i think that there's when you say like, "Hey, I'm I'm willing to engage with you in a good faith conversation," um, while someone has exposed themselves to be someone who like uh, just is like is incredibly hateful, bigoted, like a vile person, like I think that you are giving them so much more credit than they deserve. Uh, and I think that there's like an interesting thematic through line in this of like mocking people who have exposed themselves as as vile, hateful people um and and like attempting to actively silence them is like a weird uh thing but i don't know it, it's i think it's in uh it's maybe the thing that i find like most compelling in the movie outside of its depiction like the the themes of love the themes of masculinity and then the themes of not engaging in bad faith debates um i find all those things just like incredibly compelling and that's one of the I, I think that even in the later half of the latter half of this movie i still find it like really thematically rich i definitely see the imagery of that that sh- very graphic shot of the guy getting his um, yeah it's throat and mouth <laughs> completely demolished by the hilt of that axe but i'd say you know where your interpretation is very valid and maybe more one for one in that these um people are obviously i mean these people are like drugged out of their mind it's a whole nother level but you know i feel like sometimes if you have a conversation with someone about values um sometimes you can easily become the image of the man with the axe completely down his throat in general like uh i don't know if it if i so much see it as like something that they were trying to communicate in the movie but Mm -hmm. coming off of your ideas i think um it's also dangerous on the uh the opposite end of that spectrum where uh you are only able to see other people as completely institutionalized out of their mind psychos and conversations can't even exist it's it's very nihilistic <laughs> yeah and i mean obviously there's like extreme metaphor like in like uh extreme metaphorical imagery being employed here to communicate that but i think like I, i'm talking about people who are capable of the things that the people in this movie are capable of. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about dismissing them as uh, not serious thinkers, especially when they, like, in their final moments are 
you know, sticking to it. Um, you know, and, we, and th that's why I was bringing in uh, like real world examples such mm -hmm. as, you know, someone who is like uh, believes in like ethnogenocide, essentially, or yeah. you know, people who are like legitimate Nazis. Um, I think that it's like, well, I don't. I don't care about your idea, you know, like I, I, I understand like Nazism, like I understand the arguments for it and I dismiss them wholeheartedly. I think that they're like vile and bigoted. And it, I think it's like a, the same thing, like Red in that moment, you know, he's seen what this man believes in and is capable of in his value system. And he's and he's like, I, nothing that you can say to me. Uh, yeah. is going to sway me one way or the other. It's and I all don't need to respect you. In this it's moment. completely uh, as we've seen throughout the movie of the cult. It's it's all born of emotional and psychological manipulation and yeah, like torture. So those are the instruments that they use to do those things, and that is what Nick Cage completely destroys. <laughs> yeah, and I and I will say. There's a there's a moment where he lets the the younger woman go. She's just so clearly like right. I'm indoctrinated into this, but I'm not perpetuating these thoughts. Um, and I think that's like an important distinction to make. And then the older woman, uh, she is perpetuating the like school of thought. She's perpetuating mm -hmm. the idea of the ideology, and he ends up killing her. Uh, and I think it's like if you look at it as metaphorical like uh confronting ideology versus confronting those who may have been indoctrinated and aren't attempting to perpetuate it aren't you know like understanding the difference between perpetuation and indoctrination i think are like it, i think it's like very very nuanced in, in how it communicates that stuff it, it you know uh and again that's my read i haven't seen any interviews that make me feel like this is an intent behind these movies but it was just like Rewatching it today, I was like, oh, I keep thinking about these things over mm -hmm. and over again. Well, that's um, what, you know, that's what a kind of an art house movie does sometimes, especially mm -hmm. one with so much evocative visuals and less dialogue. You can really think from it and at it. Um, how did you feel about the end, the very end, the drive away? The end. Um, yeah, so at the very end of the movie, uh, Red is driving away having exacted his revenge everyone who is associated with the crime is now dead he's killed them all um and closed uh, casket clo <laughs> closed casket for all of them yes especially that last guy uh um yeah i you know i i, I felt like satisfied by that and i don't have like a clear read of the intent uh, as far as like the the any sort of uh so there's a there's a very very interesting shot that Derek was alluding to earlier, where we see uh, a flashback of when Red and Mandy first met at a bar, um, and uh, you know the, the the moment where they like first uh, look at each other and discover each other, and then you have um, Red in his current state. At, you know you jump forward or into the present and. Um, you have Red just drenched, caked in blood after like he's committed all of this violence, and you have uh, Mandy sitting in his passenger side, and there's a shot of her looking, you know, uh, like she has throughout the rest of the movie, just peaceful and uh, and like a beautiful. There's like almost like a glow to her, um, and then you cut <laughs> to uh, Nick who is caked in blood staring at her and just like 
smiling. Like the only distinguishable features on his face are just his white, white teeth because he's like grinning. And then his like the whites of his eyes, everything else is just blood. And it's this like manic, insane it's 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 really a crazy energy and it, it's definitely yeah. one of those things that depending on how it hits you is either really scary or just really hilarious yeah totally it's totally like on the edge of just madness yes um yeah it's it's weird because you can't she doesn't seem to have any sort of a reaction to him uh in that state she doesn't she seems to just be like present and sort of indifferent to her surroundings and then you know i i don't know did you read into anything about well, like what it, it's just interesting like um i think that i always think about the graduate when a movie ends on a car drive away and just people's facial expressions mm. to kind of make you think is this a happy ending is this right. a sad ending is it something else um, because, you know, obviously there's the catharsis of him killing everyone in mm -hmm. this drug-fueled rage, but obviously, you know, juxtaposing that with a woman who would break down at the thought of killing baby birds or whatever that metaphor is in the beginning, like, the the color also comes back at the end. Basically, the red and pink, and I don't even know how to describe it, all these colors yeah. that are used to kind of represent... Uh, you know, whatever you want to say they represent, but they definitely die out with Mandy. Mm -hmm. And um, they're huge in uh, the scenes in which the cult leader is building and creating an obsession, as well as huge in the scenes where Nick Cage is building and creating this genuine love. Yeah. And then when she dies, they're gone. So yeah, like the bathroom freakout scene is just like sterile uh, mm -hmm. lighting. It's there's there's no um sort of uh artificial coloration to it at all but it's it, just like the stark light of day it comes back yeah it almost looks like um fluorescent or whatever mm -hmm. um it comes back at the very end along with like a totally psychedelic space sky or whatever and to me it kind of it, it it it's again the uh depths of masculinity in terms of blind rage and physical violence and it again is fueled by the overwhelming power of mandy this peaceful woman who drove a cultist to obsess and kill and burn and eventually uh her painful absence uh in nick's life possessed him to do the same kinds of actions, albeit to people who deserved it and were the catalyst of, you know, killing Mandy. But I don't know. It, it's it definitely kind of looks like if you've ever. <laughs> it's the moment I think in "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" where they're all drunk and they're doing the dance at the reunion, <laughs> and then you flip on the lights. And everybody's sweaty and nasty, and it's not as elegant or meaningful as you thought it was. That's yeah. kind of my interpretation of Mandy kind of just being an object of Nicolas Cage's mind, and he's happy about it, and he feels this like relief and connection with her. But 
when you see the reverse, all it is is a totally nuts, drugged out of his mind killer driving down the road who had terrible things happen to him. So that's yeah. kind of how I read the the end there. I think I'm with you. I think that that is probably the intention uh, of that shot. It's a uh, yeah. It's it is funny though. It's like it's totally <laughs> it's funny. A, yeah, it's a very funny <laughs> visual as well. It's like um, we can definitely read into a lot of this violence and stuff into these interesting places or, well, it's, well I'll let our listeners decide if it's interesting, but uh, you can definitely read into representations and, and what a, a filmmaker might be conveying. But surface level, mm-hmm. it's absolutely funny and wild and crazy. Yes. So, so absurd and surreal and psychedelic and um but yeah that's mandy uh let's do like really quick summations i think that this is a really really long movie and then ob- obviously like so meaty i think that this was one of our longer conversations well about it's, a movie, it's and the there's season so premiere we could have talked about it's yes it's a season premiere totally. so it's a little extra a little long. long yeah a little um, extra. but yeah do you want to start off uh and then of course uh oh shoot i got an intro what is, what is this called uh the <laughs> Uh, okay yeah we have to do our um our oh this is just our review this is <laughs> our ranking system of the course, ranking yeah is yeah. a three-point scale starting with good 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 bad and bad bad oh, uh man. and then just a really quick refresher a bad movie is a bad movie with no redeeming qualities a good bad is a movie that um, was sincerely made and there were legitimate earnest attempts at trying to create something unique um, uh, but it's sort of like it's good and you can have fun in spite of the efforts and intentions of the creator and then a good good is uh, just a successfully executed movie that is uh, that is good and enjoyable I don't know it's you know whatever you you get what it is yeah (laughs) I think we get it we get it um but yeah why don't you start us off for the ranking of mandy it's a tough one because it kind of just comes down to what you want to get out of movies you know Mm -hmm. like i don't fault anybody for not wanting to watch a slow paced uh visual metaphor unfold where you can kind of think about what things represent and stuff like that is you know not a prerequisite of a good movie and Definitely. to be honest i'm never gonna watch this movie again like unless we're having some screening or, or something like that like i enjoyed it and i any a mark of a of a movie that i think is worth watching is one that you don't you're not really sure how you feel about it or you just want to talk about it about the things mm-hmm. you don't like and the things that you liked so that's what i value in like a in a good movie um so even though it it didn't really register with me some of the um the choices of the of the kind of genre stuff like i don't like evil dead or like highly saturated um horror and but i especially with the stuff we're going to be watching i'm sure very soon it's night like time goes by a little faster when you get to kind of like latch on to a director who's doing things deliberately and a story that is bigger than just Nick Cage being in the fucking movie. So I will give it a good good. Wonderful. Um I um 
I really love this movie. It's um, it's one of my favorite Nick Cage movies out there. I, I'm a big fan of like slow, contemplative uh, movies that are about romance and about relationships, which is sort of uh, the the early um, part of this movie. Definitely. And I'm also a big fan of uh, like really ridiculous sort of like horror, um, like just incredibly like campy, but like good looking and visually interesting and arresting uh, like horror, like violent psychedelic camp. Um, so this this movie like it, it's a and it's a little hard sometimes. Uh, I, I don't know if I would say that this movie is like perfectly segues into from one into the other. I think it might be a yeah. little bumpy, a little jarring, and yeah. I can absolutely understand someone being like, I like parts of this movie. I like the first half of this movie, and then it becomes something I really don't like. I totally understand that. But for me, as someone who very very much enjoy like this is so so far up my alley uh what this movie is like trying to accomplish and then i i truly that the thematic stuff that we talked about over the course of our discussion i i think is like really compelling and interesting and um you know my read on it again i don't know if it is exactly in line with the intent but um I, there's there's just so much about this movie thematically that resonated with me uh so i give it a good good yeah, also. it's original and it's yeah, it's, it's a trip. And obviously, we talked about it for a long time, and it was it was you know we were ready to. It, it's easy to kind of dig into and and yeah. yeah. Um, and now we have to rank it in a section or a segment that we call cage match. Cage match. And just to give you uh, a brief uh, refresher, it's been. Uh, quite some time since our previous season. We need to uh, sort of refresh everyone. Uh, our ranking as it stands as of now includes nine movies. Uh, our number one spot is held by Joe, followed by mm. Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, followed by Dog Eat Dog, followed by Stolen, Outcast, Ghost Rider, Pay the Ghost, mm. Sorcerer's Apprentice, <laughs> And then at the bottom of the barrel, knowing. Um, knowing will never leave, I think. That thing is yes. hot garbage, dude. I think we had talked a lot about knowing possibly being the bedrock of yeah. our uh, review list. Um, I'll say it. Uh, I, I love Joe. That was mm -hmm. one of the big movies that sort of got this idea cooking for me because uh, mm -hmm. I think it's one of the first times he worked with an auteur in like the later part of his career. But mm -hmm. I will say that Joe um, is, is it does some more like conventional stuff that I find just a little less exciting than Mandy. Um, you know, there, there was so much good about it, but I, I, my personal ranking would have Mandy above Joe, but I'm interested to see how you feel. Well, at least, you know, we only have to kind of, it's literally, I would agree that it's between those two for the top. I'm maybe yeah. not as quick to, to, to give it to Mandy, but I'm just happy. It, like, the bottom and the top are easy. It's that just weird, <laughs> nebulous shit in the middle that takes forever to rank. Um, so, I mean, I want to say Joe is still my number one, but I just there's just these little moments in Joe that are such a weird miss. 
mm-hmm. um, that kind of took me out of the movie. Whereas at least with Mandy, I can say that like it's all one package, you know, it's all one cohesive thing that yes. was delivered to me by the director, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't. Uh, Let's hear it, Derek. Uh, <laughs> man. I know um, you feel pretty strongly, and there are things that miss for me about Mandy that really hit specifically for you. So yeah. I I can totally concede it to be number one because if I had any disposition, it's totally subjective, some of the things I don't like about Mandy. But yeah. in terms of objectivity, I really appreciate what's there. So I'll, I'll give it to Mandy too. Definitely. Yeah, and I will say, like, a part of me just wants to reward mandy for being something that is like so entirely uh new territory for for nick and you know like whether or not all of it like works and lands for you personally you know uh that's uh but but joe is definitely more you know you you could draw genre parallels between that and a lot of his other movies Um, well like i like i said the some of the things i uh, that i didn't like about Nick and Mandy is I brought it to it myself based off right. of my preconceived notions and um everything I know and have experienced from Nick Cage um but uh you know the I definitely it's definitely one of the ones to help you appreciate him a little bit like the man you can say what you will about his performances, but he comes to work when he goes to set. It doesn't matter who's the director, what the budget yeah. is. It Daddy's doesn't... clocking in. He's working for you, man. He's an actor, and Panos used him. And, and I think we've landed on this before where he is a great tool for, I don't want to call him a tool, you know, but yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like he's, No, totally. He's Willem a great Defoe. utility. Yeah, Willem Dafoe just gave an interview where he was talking about his performance in The Lighthouse and, like, Mm. how he specifically, much more so than finding movies that um, are, like, smart career moves for him, uh, are, he he loves working with auteurs and just, like, fully giving himself, like, this is a a common uh, metaphor um, or simile that um, actors will use, but he's like, I just want to be, like, a paint on the canvas for this Mm -hmm. director. I just Mm -hmm. want to serve his idea as best i can um and i think that nick is definitely doing that it's a little weird because his performance is is in some ways on brand for him Mm -hmm. uh but but also like i don't even think that nick is like that that's something that is sort of projected onto him i don't think that's something that he is putting out there into the world i think he puts it out if he's not given anything to work with you know what I yeah. mean? Like, if it's a yeah. movie that is just nothing, that is, like, literally getting Nick Cage because we have a small budget and people will watch it, maybe, yeah. if Nick Cage is in it. If he's given that, then, I don't know. I, I don't mean to, like... I saw some interviews with Panos and Nick and stuff, and, and it definitely seemed like there was some stuff over Nick's head about the role and about the movie. Like, oh, that, that yeah. Panos can really... I mean, it's... Panos's movie. He wrote, he directed, created it. So no one's going to know it as intimately as him. But it definitely almost felt like, um, especially as an actor who just works so much on some mm-hmm. stuff that is just all over the place, like it's good that he really trusted Panos and worked with him. Um, and he, he hasn't, I'm sure he has an ego because he's a professional 
movie star. Sure. But that's what that's what worries me sometimes about movies we watch is like this is literally starring Nick Cage for the sake of it. So I'm already kind of worried about yeah. what that is and what, you know, yes. it might devolve. If the draw, if the only draw of the movie is his presence, you get a little worried. Yeah, but yes, I I I believe he was is being utilized well and, Yes. Uh, yeah. So we have 10 films now with Mandy at the top spot. Um, So yeah, now we're going to move into uh, a segment where we react to an upcoming Nicolas Cage film called The Coppola Cabana. You gotta do some music. His name was Nicky. There you go. (laughs) He was an actor. At the Copa, Copa Cabana. And here we are. As Twitter followers. Yes. Of course. Our famous segment, the Copa Cabana. And in this week's episode for the season opener, we're going to be talking about what what film are we going to be talking about derek the color purple no no it's it's uh <laughs> <laughs> it's called um oh man, it is called <laughs> the color it, out of space the color out of space color it's so funny because looking space. at his imdb it is not out yet the color out of space and it is like 14 down from the top movie on his oh uh, my God. imdb <laughs> So the the uh, color out of space is a, a town is struck by a meteorite and the fallout is catastrophic. And this is a movie that is actually being produced by some of the producers that um, were on Mandy as right. well. That's one of the first things. And it looks like it's maybe employing color in some similar ways. Um, but this is directed by Richard Stanley and stars uh, Nicolas Cage, uh, Cure... Ianka Kilcher, jo- Jolie Richardson, uh, and is based off of an H.P. Lovecraft short story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what did you think uh, watching this trailer, Derek? Um, I think it looks bad. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, a trailer is not a movie. And no, I, yeah. I, I know, I, sometimes I get made fun of about this, but I love H.P. Lovecraft. Like, I lo- I've read a lot of his stuff. Um, and I'm just so into the mythos and, and the world that he built. Um, mm-hmm. And it, this movie uh, looks kind of like it would fit in to a Netflix series about like supernatural alien stuff. Um, yeah. Especially considering that like, you know, Lovecraft to a fault even is about kind of trying to describe or convey things that are indescribable. And in this case, it is a color and they are using practical lights to try to convey the shades of the color, mm-hmm. which it's just sets you up. Like that's not the point, you know, it sets you up for, for kind of not hitting the mark with the whole, why you do this. I mean, it's smart of them to put Mandy's producers there as a draw, because if anybody's yeah. going to do a movie about cosmic horror revolving around color, I would trust the guy who did Mandy almost more than anybody else. But it's it's like um, some places that like I think the producers of Lord of the Rings get put on a lot of stuff that sucks. Mm. 
Um, and I feel like this is going to be... I'm also worried about Nick Cage being a family man that never has worked out in the past. From yeah, the movies that we'll I've go a little, a little deeper into yeah. like what this movie looks to be about. It looks like uh, probably like uh, East Coast, maybe Massachusetts or something. These mm-hmm. uh, This family is living in this beautiful house in this forested area, and uh, a meteorite hits, and crazy sort of psychedelic stuff uh starts to take place um and it's funny that you said like it reminds you of a netflix show because there's uh the little kid from the haunting of hill house the one mm -hmm. with the glasses is Mm -hmm. in it and i also was like even before he popped up in the trailer i'm like oh this kind of like looks like this like there's not a cohesiveness to the visuals that um or, or just like um a fidelity to the visuals in this that looks like it's on par with mandy's it looks a little cheaper mm-hmm. uh, for you know for lack of a like a you know more accurate term honestly um, it makes me think goosebumps more than yeah it looks a little <laughs> goosebumpsy uh yeah also nick's character it you know one of the things that like works about mandy is that his characterization of red he doesn't look out of place as like a uh sort of a sullen lumberjack he's mm-hmm. you know like put he's bulked up he's like a big bearded guy you can't really tell that his beard and his hair is like super dyed in that movie which is like a problem in some of the other movies that can kind of take you out of it um but then this is he he looks like he's just wearing stuff that we know that Nicolas Cage would never wear. He's got you know, glasses and a sensible sweater <laughs> and, you know, white colored shirt underneath that. I think about the, what was it, like the hot dog line from Knowing where he's out in the backyard with his son and he's like, <laughs> Dad's famous. <laughs> oh, yeah. What is that line? I that hate is a good that. Uh, yeah. It but, looks very similar because, yeah, he plays a lot of uh, teachers uh, throughout mm-hmm. his movies and it's always a little tough to get on board with. I like. You know, uh, his character Red, and we didn't talk about this at all, has some similarities to Joe, I think. Right. They're kind of like gruff, mm-hmm. um, more uh, laconic um, guys. And uh, this doesn't really seem to fit my favorite characterization of late career Cage. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I don't know. I hope he leans. I'm really interested to see the Nick Cage who lets go of youth and mm-hmm. leans into yes. being an older character like a wizened experienced and very much not the leading action man but like a force in the film as like an i'd be so interested to see the evolution it's like a it's like a band uh like the beatles are a good example their music changed and their identity changed they had a Um, graceful maturation yeah, and like Blink-182 came out with their new album like not too long ago, and it sounded exactly the same, so I was not interested. Like, yeah, I was that's way a great more, point. Yeah, way more a interested. bunch of like 40-year-old married guys who are like, high school sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My it's girlfriend like, sucks. They were like, <laughs> oh, Blink-182's got a new album. I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to see like how these musicians are kind of going to interpret uh, how the music industry has changed and the pressures on their lives as like older people and like and then it yeah it was like high school sucks <laughs> yeah. and it's like literally failed the like Beatles test of like, it feels evolving. very much like a, a thing that you would see on Vine and then in YouTube you would always see like people who were like failed actors who were obviously in their 30s being like 
uh, Mondays at school be like? And it's yeah. like, motherfucker, you haven't been in school for like 15 years. <laughs> like, it's the Steve Buscemi, the hello, fellow kids. <laughs> yeah, it's hello, yeah. fellow kids. Um, um, but yeah. I, I hope... Uh, I just kind of saw him. I haven't seen him in a while, and uh, he's getting older, and I hope mm-hmm. he leans into it, and I'd love to see that side. Contemporary Cage could turn into a whole other thing if we start getting a, a different kind of Cage character. In the Truly, future. yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in this. Uh, you know, they're they're very much leaning into the fa- the Lovecraft connection, which right. I think is interesting. It's on like the poster. It says HP. The title of the film, I think, is HP Lovecraft's Color right. Out of Space. Right. Um. So for them to lean that far into it is like, okay, they're being. Uh, that makes me think that someone who's involved creatively is very very interested in that, whereas a lot of uh nick's movies feel like you know they're it's like an eastern european uh like monarch's son who's like i'd like to direct the movie and i'd like to have Whoa. Nicolas a cage in it. Uh, take. <laughs> I, <laughs> if you look there's a very <laughs> there's a very specific These type of facts. director These are that works with him on his uh vod releases gotcha. um so I'm I'm interested to see you know I'm I'm big into Nick being used by like auteur directors uh, who you know uh, see the validity of him as an actor and as a performer. So I'm I'm set up to to fail because I I'm too <laughs> interested in Lovecraft and I think Lovecraft gets a bad rap um, uh, because it he his work can get tied to a lot of like kitschy or or just kind of lowbrow stuff yeah um and so this doesn't necessarily look like the lovecraft treatment that i've always wanted (laughs) for sure yeah this is not like the 1920s pi talking to uh you know like animal men (laughs) which is (laughs) that's the real stuff that that is sort of a that's what comes to mind, at least for me. Like you know, who's sort of a like a hard-boiled Boston detective who's uh, working on the harbor and fucking trips out and sees Cthulhu or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is. Uh, it, it, I'm I'm interested to see like also what like a contemporary like Lovecraft story could look like. I don't yeah. know. We'll yeah. see. Uh, I'm very very interested to hear your take on that because I don't have as much of a familiarity with Lovecraft as you do. Yeah, um, I mean it's yeah it, it's one of those things too that's very subjective like i uh because lovecraft has been so um like a source reference for a lot of fiction and media, sure that's i really kind of got introduced to lovecraft on the fringes of other things referencing lovecraft so that added to the mysterious kind of it's this ancient knowledge that like permeates all of life and society for thousands of years and like that literally is just me as a kid being inspired by something kind of fueling nostalgia towards this like writer but but i will uh, i'll play ball i'll give it a look i mean it it, my expectations are low so that that can only help with a, a new movie all right that's uh that'll do it for this episode for our next episode derek are you ready mm-hmm. for uh what we got coming up next week nope i was thinking we're gonna since we did something that's so recent 
something that was really fun. We're going to jump back a little bit into back to the year of 2007. Can you oh. remember what were you up to back then? Oh, man, I was young. Um, I was I was in high school, right? In high school. Yeah. Very cool. Skateboarding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 360s. Yeah, doing all the cool freaking high school stuff. We are going to be watching National Treasure Book of Secrets. What? The, we the didn't sequel. watch that? Oh, the yeah. sequel? <laughs> We're watching the Oh, goddammit. Um, yeah, I think the first one is a little before the time we're exploring, so we get to see the sequel, a John Turtletaub directed, uh, National Treasure Book of Secrets. I don't think I've ever seen it. I've definitely never seen it. A hundred percent. Well, you get to, and, uh, Derek, don't try to, to escape to the Maldives again. You're <laughs> stuck here. You gotta ride this out But I miss, me. I miss my orphans and my beachfront <laughs> property. I know that you were living a very happy and successful life, but just like a Nicolas Cage character, you've been pulled back into the harsh reality of the world. And you have a task that you need to complete, and I'm going to hold you to it. Well, uh, we should, because of how long this one is, do you put timestamps in the in the podcast? Yeah. Or uh, You should do no. it for the segments. Like, uh, oh, yeah. people just want to do, because it's a pretty long Mandy thing, so if people get kind of tired of our long-winded, they can go straight to... To the cage segments. match or whatever they want to do okay so i just volunteered you live to kind of do a little bit more work and with that I i'm gonna cut can... all this out <laughs> <laughs> um no but that is a good idea i like i like when a podcast does a timestamp. um but yeah that'll do it for this week's episode for uh derek and i thank you so much for listening it's good to be back uh, until i have to watch this fucking national treasure sequel that's right. I'm going to have like nothing to say about it. I hope you know that. I'm going to have so much to say. He's got to get the He's got to Benjamin Gates must follow a clue left in John Wilkes Booth's diary what <laughs> to prove his ancestors innocence in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. What? This is like, according to Cage. This is That's a weird, right? Yes. Okay, this is going to be fun. I'm excited now. All right. All right. Well, until next See time. See everybody.